0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In April 2011, residents of the French town of Nantes were growing concerned about one of their neighbors. On a quiet residential street of the upper-middle-class town, something was not right. Neighbors of the Dupont de Ligonaise family noticed that the shutters on the home had been closed for more than a week. That was odd, because even when the family traveled, the shutters were always left open. Also, as far as anyone knew, the family of six had no plans to leave town. Yet, there had been no sign of 50-year-old Xavier Dupont de Ligonnez, his 49-year-old wife, Agnes, or their four children, Arthur, Thomas, Anne, and Benoit, since earlier that month. No one had seen the family's two Labradors or heard them barking from inside the house. Agnez's car was still parked outside on the street and hadn't moved for a couple of weeks. Xavier's car, however, was nowhere to be found. On April 11th, a concerned neighbor stopped by the house to see if the family was all right. Taped to the mailbox, she saw a note that read, "'Return all mail to sender. Thank you.'" Fearing the worst, police were contacted, and they performed a routine wellness check of the premises. There was no trace of the family, and no evidence of a disturbance. But in the days, weeks, and months that followed, what authorities discovered would lead them on one of the most intriguing and infamous manhunts in French history. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès was born on January 9, 1961 in the French city of Versailles. Just outside Paris, Versailles is the world-renowned home of the palace of Louis XIV, otherwise known as the Sun King. It was fitting that Xavier and his two sisters were raised there. Like many in the region, the Dupont de Ligonnès family were descendants of nobility. They were a prestigious aristocratic family originally from the southeast of the country. When Xavier was 15 years old, his parents separated, leaving the teenager in a dark place. But not just for the reasons you might think. It seems that his mother, who was deeply conservative and devoutly religious, turned to end-of-the-world prophecies and dark conspiracy theories, turning things upside down for the family. Not just a follower, She actually founded a radical group called the Church of Philadelphia, whose teachings focused on the impending apocalypse. Despite the strange family dynamic, Xavier did his best to maintain the facade of a normal upbringing. He attended high school where he was reportedly an average student. He was, however, said to be a great communicator, with a good sense of humor. After graduating from high school, he enrolled in business courses. It was here during his studies in the early 1980s that he met 18-year-old Agnès. The two fell madly in love and planned to spend their lives together. But that dream would have to wait. For Xavier, the next few years would be a life of international travel, exploration, and of course, having a great time. So, the couple parted ways. At least, temporarily. In the early 1990s, Xavier returned to Versailles, where he reconnected with Agnès and the couple picked up where they had left off. By this time, Agnès had an 18-month-old son named Arthur from a previous relationship. Xavier embraced the boy as his own and adopted him when the couple got married in November 1991. In August 1992, the couple welcomed their first child together, Thomas. Two years later, in 1994, Their daughter Anne was born, followed by Benoit in 1997. After moving several times over the years, the family had settled in Pornique, located in the west of France. With the advent of the internet during the 1990s, Xavier was determined to make his fortune through what would become known as e-commerce. As an ambitious sales entrepreneur, he hoped to relocate the family to Florida, where he would build his business empire. The process ended up costing a small fortune, but it would be worth it once he was in the U.S. But the move never happened, and the family stayed in France. This setback didn't stop Xavier from pursuing his financial dreams, and so he kept working diligently on several businesses. One was an incentive program for sales reps in the hospitality industry. As part of the project, Xavier created a customer loyalty program offering discounts in hotels and restaurants. In 2003, the family packed up and moved to the French town of Nantes, located on the Atlantic coast. The family rented a modest townhouse, while Xavier continued working on new business ideas, many of which catered to the hospitality industry. Curiously, one of the corporations he set up in Florida was a bit mysterious. First of all, whatever the company did was a secret. Even though it was publicly registered, a search for information about its operations would likely turn up nothing. Initially, Xavier recruited half a dozen sales reps to the newly formed organization, but after only two months, he let them all go. Given the legal and administrative trouble he went through, the whole venture was suspicious. That's not even counting the fact that the business was set up through a French expat who lived in Miami. The man in question was said to be a consultant specializing in opening foreign bank accounts. He was reported to be an expert on providing his clients with anonymous and untraceable access to their funds. With another seemingly failed enterprise added to the growing list, Xavier continued searching for success from the comfort of his home office. In the meantime, Agnès was working as a teaching assistant at a local school. She attended Mass every week at her local church and was known in the community as a genuinely kind person. The DuPont de Ligonnès children were all highly intelligent and dedicated to their studies. In 2010, 20-year-old Arthur earned a degree in science, industrial technology, and sustainable development. He was looking forward to attending engineering school and had enrolled in a private college to prepare himself for the challenging course load. He had a girlfriend and worked as a waiter at a pizzeria to support himself. While he was living about an hour away for school, he always returned home on weekends to visit the family. Arthur's younger brother, 17-year-old Thomas, may have graduated with a focus on literature, but his first love was music. So this is what he was studying at university, which was just over an hour away from the family home. Thomas lived on campus and was known as someone who was shy and introverted, but always cheerful. His girlfriend said he had a gift for listening to others and shared a close bond with his family. While her older brothers were off doing their own thing, by 2011, Anne was in her third year of high school. Her friends and family described her as being much like her mother, considerate and friendly. She was focusing on a science curriculum but, like many teens, she was often distracted by social media and other interests. In her spare time, Anne worked as a model for catalogues. The youngest of the group, 13-year-old Benoit, was an altar boy at the family's church. He attended the same school as Anne, and like his older brother Thomas, he also had a love of music. Whenever he had free time, Benoit could be found behind his drum set, practicing. To everyone who knew them, the children and their parents were the quintessential perfect family. They were well-educated, affluent, and maintained a close, supportive home environment. At least, that's how it appeared from the outside. Following the neighbor's call to police regarding the family's welfare, authorities returned to the home on April 13, 2011. A search revealed that the house was neat and clean. It was obvious that no one was home and that no one had been there for some time, but there were no signs of foul play. In fact, officers noted that it looked like the family had left for a vacation. The beds had been stripped, the closet doors were open and empty of clothes, and any garbage had been thrown out. As far as police were concerned, there wasn't much about the scene to raise suspicion. But the neighbors were confident something wasn't right. For one thing, they pointed out that the family would not have all fit in Xavier's missing car. The sedan would have made it virtually impossible to accommodate six people and two large dogs. It was around this time that Xavier and Añez's immediate families received a bizarre communication. An unsigned four-page type letter dated the 11th of April, 2011, arrived in their mailboxes. It was supposedly from Xavier, who explained why the family had left without telling anyone. In the letter, he told them that they had to urgently relocate to the United States, not for another business opportunity, but to go into federal witness protection. He went on. The situation, apparently, was due to some undercover work he was conducting for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. Things had become dangerous, and the family would have to go underground for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, no one would be able to contact them during this time. In the letter, Xavier gave various instructions to the family including how to dispose of any belongings left behind in the house. There were also instructions on finalizing any financial affairs. One of the more unusual directives in the letter was for friends and family to post on social media that Xavier, Agnès, and the children had all moved to Australia. What follows is an excerpt from that letter. Hi everyone! Huge surprise! We have to leave urgently for the U.S. due to a very particular set of circumstances that we will explain below. You're receiving this letter by conventional post because for the next few years, we can't communicate any other way for safety reasons. When you read this letter, we will no longer be in France and won't be able to return for an as-yet-undetermined period of time. You must be wondering what's going on. Here's the story, at least as much as we're allowed to tell you. This letter is the only correspondence we were allowed to write, which might be good news for some of you, and it has been checked before being sent. When we started our company in Miami in 2003, we were put in contact with the DEA, who were looking for a French national to infiltrate the French nightclub scene to obtain information about drug trafficking and money laundering networks without drawing attention to themselves. I was the ideal candidate. I accepted my mission of working incognito under the condition that I maintain secrecy, which includes, even more importantly, the children. Everything has gone according to plan in the nightclubs for the last seven years. Until now. With the information I've collected in this time, I've become a key witness in an upcoming trial involving major international drug trafficking kingpins. The trial will have to take place in the U.S. in the next few years. What complicates matters is that certain tips had recently led us to believe that my cover may have been blown, and unfortunately, we received confirmation of this yesterday. Therefore, the situation has become potentially dangerous for us here, and has required us to take emergency measures. When I first went undercover, I accepted that I might be placed into witness protection. This is what we now have to do, because it's necessary, and there's no way around it. So, we have been taken into the protective custody of the U.S. government, and we have new identities, which must, of course, be kept secret. We will be living in the U.S. like any other U.S. citizen, except we will be forbidden from communicating with our family and friends for an undetermined period of time, at least until the trial is over. The hardest thing, there was some tension with the children who couldn't tell their friends and are forbidden from using online networks. We had to give up the dogs. Luckily, someone took both of them. We're relying on each of you to carry out the tasks that we have assigned you. We hope we haven't asked too much of any of you. We know we can count on you. The children's schools are aware, as are Arthur's and Thomas's landlords and Anya's and Arthur's employers. The official story is that we've been transferred to Australia for work, without providing any specific details. It would be good if you could spread this false story on Facebook and elsewhere. We hope it doesn't drag on for too many years, but we're still anxious about how long the legal proceedings in the US will take. In a while from now, we'll be able to send you some information by post. Of course, we send all our love and are thinking of you very much during this enforced separation. Take good care of yourselves. We'll have so many stories to tell you later on. Xavier's family believed the tone of the letter sounded very much like him and took much of it at face value. But alarm bells were going off for Agnez's family. They were understandably concerned their daughter and grandchildren would just up and vanish without warning. Despite what the letter said, it was entirely unlike Anez to leave without making any sort of contact beforehand to say goodbye. They took their concerns to the district attorney and on April 15, 2011, two days after the previous visit, police returned to the house. They were looking for anything that may have been missed the first time, a clue about what might have happened to the entire family, pets and all. This time around, something did stand out. They noticed that all the family photos had been removed from their frames. This was unusual, but investigators still weren't satisfied that anything illegal had happened. Still, the letter was sent for DNA testing to see if they could identify the sender. Desperate for answers, Anya's family insisted that police return to inspect the house from top to bottom, inside and outside. From April 18th to the 20th, investigators conducted three more searches. During the visits, police noticed a surprising lack of computer equipment for someone that ran numerous online businesses from home. They also found a receipt from a hardware store, located three and a half hours away from the neighborhood. The date on the receipt appeared to be at the end of March, just a few weeks before the family disappeared. The date was interesting enough, but it was the items purchased that really caught their attention. The list included large garbage bags, a box of paving slabs, cement, a garden hoe, and a shovel. The last time anyone in Xavier's family heard from him was on a voicemail he left for one of his sisters late in the evening on April 3, 2011. That was about a week before their concerned neighbor called police, and nothing about the message indicated that anything was out of the ordinary. It was only when investigators made inquiries with other neighbors, school officials, and Anya's employer that the situation became more worrisome. About 10 days ago I got a letter from the father saying he was going to work in Australia and so the children wouldn't be coming to school anymore. Their closest friends received a letter from the parents saying we have to forget her and we should not try to call her ever again. In recent days he paid off his children's school fees and told neighbours he was a secret agent preparing to move to Australia. Police describe his claims as delirious. On April 21st, the DA held a press conference informing the French public they were extremely concerned about the family's welfare. Back at the house, investigators considered the items on the hardware store receipt as a solid clue. They began digging up the backyard and it didn't take long before they found something. When they dug under the garden near the back of the property, officers made a gruesome discovery. Authorities found two graves. In one were the remains of agnes and three of their children, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit. The grave also contained the two family dogs. In the other, police found the body of Thomas. All of them were dressed in their nightclothes. They were wrapped in blankets and carefully buried in garbage bags bound with tape. Each body had been buried with a small religious icon as well as a crucifix and a candle. The entire family had been killed and buried in the backyard. Well, almost the whole family. There was one person missing amongst the dead bodies. Hello, The inquiry has unfortunately now become a criminal investigation into kidnap and murder. We know very little. It was a family who no one really spoke about, who seemed to have been quite turned in on themselves, though the father was often away for professional reasons. The bodies are thought to be those of his wife and four children aged 13 to 21. The family's two dogs had also been killed and buried. Investigators believe the victims were probably shot, neighbors can hardly believe it. The autopsies revealed that Añez and her children were shot with a 22 caliber long rifle as they slept. So had the two Labradors. According to the examiner's report, the children had all ingested powerful sedatives prior to their deaths. Añez, however, had no evidence of drugs in her system. Police noted that her sleep apnea machine recorded that it had been shut off at 3 a.m. Agnès, Arthur, Thomas, and Anne had all been shot twice in the head. Benoit had been shot twice in the chest and three times in the head. The religious items found with each of the victims, and the careful nature with which they were buried, was another clue to investigators. It indicated that the perpetrator had a close relationship to the deceased. It was the complete lack of blood in any of the rooms of the home that posed another question for authorities to answer. When they couldn't find any traces of foreign DNA or fingerprints on the bodies or the bags they had been wrapped in, investigators were stumped. When news broke of the Dupont de Ligenez family murders, the local community was shocked and devastated. Nantes was a peaceful, church-going town, and to residents, the horrific story was simply unimaginable. The top priority for authorities now was to locate Xavier. They had no idea if someone else had committed the murders and kidnapped him, or if he had been the one responsible for massacring his wife and children. Either way, wherever Xavier was, he had a three-week head start on investigators. A major police hunt is on for the father, 50-year-old Xavier Dupont de Ligonn. He told friends that he was a secret agent and had to leave the country. They were also told that his wife... 49, An active search is now on to find the father, 50-year-old Xavier Dupont, whose credit card details suggest he may have headed to the southern city of Marseille. Make sure you're following True wherever you listen to podcasts to hear the gripping conclusion to the story next week. Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès l'a laissé sur le répondeur de sa sœur le 3 avril à 22h30. of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. I'll be back next week with part two of this story.